ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستهديه ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان سيدنا محمدا عبده ورسوله ونبيه وصفيه وحبيبه بلغ الرساله وادى الامانه ونصح للامه وجاهد في سبيل الله حتى اتاه اليقين وتركنا على المحجه البيضاء ليلها كنهارها لا يزيغ عنها الا هالك فاللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الاولين وصل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الاخرين وصل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الملأ الاعلى الى يوم الدين وصل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في كل وقت وحين وعلى اله الاطهار وعلى اصحابه الاخيار وعلى اتباعه الابرار الى يوم الدين يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن الا وانتم مسلمون يا ايها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحده وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والارحام ان الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم اعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما وبعد فان اصدق الحديث كتاب الله وان خير الهدي هدي سيدنا ومولانا رسول الله وان شر الامور لمحدثاتها فكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار in the year 1860 one of the famous mashayikh of al azhar sheikh ibrahim al bayjuri rahimahullah passed away and sheikh ibrahim al bayjuri he is important because as a student it's almost impossible to go through the azhar program without studying one or several of his works so he has written what we consider the most approachable and definitive commentary on a book of theology jawharat at-tawhid and this is a standard that we have to read and if you're a shafi'i he wrote a very famous gloss on the uh, one of the texts of the shafi'i madhhab he wrote a commentary on qasidat al-burda he wrote a commentary on qasidat banit sa'ad all of these he was a well-rounded and he was sheikh al-azhar rahimahullah but sheikh ibrahim al-bayjuri he serves as another important demarcating moment as we were studying because he was amongst the last generation of people to live in the pre-modern world so he was born in the late 1700s and he died in 1860 and even though this period is already the period of the industrial revolution in Europe these things really didn't come to the heartland of the muslim world until a little bit later so the way that ibrahim al bayjuri rahimahullah led his life more or less was contiguous and similar to the way that the sahaba lived their lives Ibrahim al-Bayjuri's teacher Sheikh al-Fadali he used to go to Al-Azhar mosque every morning in a horse and carriage and he would 
teach his driver aqidah because Imam al-Fadali was a mutakallim, he was a theologian. And he would go from the Bulaq area, which is on the Nile River, by horse and carriage to Al-Azhar every day and back, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes. And every day he would be, you know, rhyming the poem of uh, theology, so his driver became a theologian. You know, these are the famous stories. So this technology, these technologies, the way they, these people lived their lives was similar, more or less, to the way that the Sahaba lived their lives. So when they would read a story of the Sirah, or when they would read a story of the Sahaba, it would kind of make sense to them. Because they could see in their manner of living similarities. But from around the year 1830 onwards, there is this rapid advancement of technology and communication. And even the way that people live their daily lives, it fundamentally changed. So today, if we were to read a story, uh, for example, one of the examples we always use is if you read the hadith that talk about the hours of the night, that the Prophet ﷺ would sleep some of the night and he would stay up some of the night, that the first third of the night, that when, when is the night? Well, we don't really know that anymore because our clock is different. And if you remember, for those who, have, who are old enough, when you used to go to Mecca or Medina, uh, there was a clock in the haram, but the time was different than the actual time. You ever wonder what that time was? That was the original, quote-unquote, Islamic time, Islamic day. That basically the adhan al-dhuhr is 12 o'clock. And then from that demarcation, so every day it's essentially set, when Maghrib comes in, that's the first of the night. So then you can count the hours of the night, for example. So that started to change. The way people started to live their lives would change. And that change that we still are living through causes a lot of Muslims to not understand certain aspects of Islam or to be uncomfortable with certain aspects of Islam or to have questions about certain aspects of Islam vis-a-vis -vis our modern, current, liberal sensibilities that certain things don't make sense, some things that we don't understand. And what that really is about, if you can step way, 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 way back, and I know that the Jummah is not the most appropriate venue to have this conversation, but I want to throw this out there because I hope, inshallah, in the spring, uh, sometime maybe we can convert this into like a class about understanding what the Muslim paradigm is. The Industrial Revolution stems from a certain paradigm, from a certain system of thinking. All great movements in life have to stem from some rhyme or reason, some way of thinking. And if you have been through the school system here, you'll understand what the Western paradigm is based on, you know, post-enlightenment. You will probably have read some of these great works. We, we, you know, in school we had these things called Norton Anthology. Right? These were the very big book that was supposed to have a little bit of all of the great thinkers that constitute Western thought. That is what produces, or that is the framework, or that is the substrate for the Western paradigm, of which all of us here are also a part of, because we grow up, like I mean, you grow up in this country, so we're also a part of that paradigm, so we understand that. But that paradigm has certain assumptions that are not compatible with the assumptions that form a Muslim paradigm. And this is where this issue uh, emerges. So from the time of Imam al-Bayjuri onward, 
the way that the Muslim live their daily life, and this is an example I'm giving in Egypt because this is the context that I know. Of course, this would apply for all other Muslim-majority contexts and cultures. That the way people lived their lives was different. The daily life, the rhythm of daily life changed. The way that they ate changed. The way that they dressed changed. To the point that there became a tension between modernity and a tension between what was considered traditional, classical, Islamic, etc. And this lasts up until today, where in a lot of these cultures, the figure of Islam, or the figure of tradition, or the figure of, uh, of uh, um, Arabic, these are all people that are funny and antiquated characters. If you look at Arab cinema, or Arab TV, or drama, the fool is the Arabic teacher. The fool is the Qur'an teacher. The idiot is the person that dresses like the sheikh. The sheikh is considered the dumb person, the limited person, the idiotic person, the uneducated person. And they speak in this fusha, you know, and you make and they have all of these, they make fun of the way that they talk in the drama. And the refined person, the educated person, the cultured person is the person that sits in the chair and eats with the fork and the knife and not the person that sits on the floor and eats with their hands. But none of these are indication of culture. There are many of the people that I have sat next to that <laughs> eat with a fork and knife or that are the most you know, uncouth, uncultured, profane people I've ever met. And I've had uh, food on the floor with people with my hands that they were the most refined and illuminated people. So these are just stereotypes. But I'm saying this so people can understand where this tension of this paradigm comes from. So the way you dress or the way people started to dress started to indicate the difference of their leaning, the differences of their paradigm. Which is why it was actually an issue. Muhammad Abdu, the famous Mufti of Egypt who died in the year 1905. He was Mufti from 1899 to 1905. He was actually formally asked a question if it was permissible for men to wear a, a hat. Like a, uh, like a fedora hat or a cap, not like an imma. Because all men at that time, they covered their head. Actually in our literature, if you were a man and your head was not covered the judge would not accept your testimony in court. It was a sign that you are not a reliable person, that you would walk outside with your head uncovered. Of course, these things have changed. So he was actually asked, can you wear like a hat? You know, can you make masah on these socks that you wear? Because people that wore these type of socks, it became a statement. لَقَدْ كَفَرَ وَلَبَسَ sharab. The person, he committed kufr and he put on the socks. Meaning that they gave up their traditional dress and their traditional way of life. And linked to that is Islam, and they followed sort of the Western way, etc. So all of these tensions, no need to belabor anymore. I think people understand what I'm saying. So the question for why am I, what's the point of saying all of this? Well, what makes up our paradigm? We understand a little bit post-enlightenment, modernism, post-modernism. We understand the industrial revolution. We understand all of the institutions that emerged to serve that way of thinking. Our modern education system is based on the industrial revolution model. It's a completely antiquated system, but it's meant to teach children how to sit at your desk, follow orders, i.e. how to stand in an assembly line and move things forward. It's not taught you how to free think freely, which is what liberal arts is. Liberal means freedom. 
The liberal arts education is supposed to free your mind. A scholar is a person who has enough free time to sit around and think. That's actually what the word means. And Imam al-Shafi, rahimahullah, he said, one of the things you need if you want to learn is you need al-bulgha. You need resources, somebody to spend on you, some type of trust or some type of foundation, that scholarship that spends on you so you have enough time to study and think and learn and memorize. Al-bulghatu wa tool zamani he says. You need the bulgha, you need your financial independence, and tool zamani you need, some, you need a, a long period of time, which is essentially what a scholarship is. That's, that's an education system that teaches you to be free. But our modern, modern education system, that institution stems from this industrial revolution model. So that's why these ideas of a paradigm, a systematic way of thinking is so important. So what is our systematic way of thinking? And I'm not saying good and bad. I'm just trying to describe the situation. So some people might think what I'm saying means that this is inherently bad. No, I'm just saying we should understand where these things come from. What's the Islamic paradigm? If we were to use those terms, the Islamic paradigm begins by us asking three fundamental questions that we, we consider absolute questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? These questions help us determine, and the answers to these questions help us determine the way that we think. And therefore helps links us to our past, our religious and spiritual past, but also allows us to live a productive life in this world. Where do we come from? You know, we say, Inna lillahi. You know, we come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the point of view that we were created. Allah has created us and bestowed, and He's created us in time and circumstance, of course, but we're just saying very abstractly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the universe, created us in it, and gave us certain faculties that He did not give other creations. And that is what we call a taklif. He has given us moral responsibility because we are a thinking creature. In Islamic logic, the human being is called al-hayawan al-natiq, the sentient, the conversant animal. We are a species, we are an animal, but we are a rational, sentient animal. Al-hayawan al-natiq, we can speak, we can communicate, we can write, we can think, we can process. And with that gift of reason and intellect comes a moral responsibility in which Allah can then tell us, if'al la taf'al, do this, don't do that. So I come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we're created from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we're saying, and I am morally responsible. So then the Muslim mind and the Muslim intellect can then understand, okay, what are the things I'm supposed to do so I can do them? And what are the few things that Allah tells me not to do so I can avoid them? Meaning that I am prepared to hear that, and I am all equally prepared to follow that, inshallah, to the best of my ability. But I'm not concerned with having to create laws, divine laws of what's right and what's wrong. And therefore, in my paradigm, I understand that what Allah tells me to do, I would categorize as good, and what Allah tells me not to do, I would categorize as bad. Sometimes I might rationally understand that, but sometimes I might not rationally, and we've spoken about that before. Why do we pray five times? Why is Dhuhr this many rakahs? Not, not, why isn't Dhuhr one rakah? Because it's in the middle of the work day and why don't we make Aisha you know, eight rakah? All this way. There's no rhyme or reason to that. Except that Allah Ta'ala told us it's this way. We believe in the system of thinking. We believe in the veracity of the Prophet So we say to summarize all this, Sama'na wa atana. We hear and we obey. So that's part of my paradigm, part of my way of thinking. Well, why am I here? 
The second question. The Qur'an answers this in three ways. There are three reasons, meta-reasons why we were created. One is we were created to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ you know that verse right there, Inza illa I was only I have only created jinn kind and mankind to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what we owe our creator for being created is that we worship him. How do we worship him? We pray, we fast, we give our zakah, we're good to our neighbors, we smile, we help people out. All of this is what we call ibadah. And we do this as a thanksgiving for being alive. The tax that we have on our life is that we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's part of my paradigm. So part of my paradigm is always going to be, where is the worship in this? It's not just material. It's not just rational. It's not just the observable, tangible. But there's also the irrational, or the metaphysical, or the spiritual component to the issue at hand. So it's not enough that I satisfy one, but in my paradigm, I need to satisfy the other one as well. So in short form, we say, you know, what's my niyyah? You know, what's my intention of doing this? And when you have a niyyah, when you take a niyyah in doing something, you've created that thing into an act of worship. So when your parents call you in the middle of the night to come and change the light bulbs, I speak from experience, you take an ayah, you take an intent. I'm doing this because the Prophet ﷺ taught us to be good to our parents. Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَحَمَلَتْهُ أُمُّهُ وَهْنًا عَلَى وَهْنًا His mother, your, our mothers held us in pain upon pain. The labor pain, the pregnancy pain. The least we owe our parents is that we obey them. Given everything that they have done to us because they literally gave us life. If they had not given us life and changed our diapers and fed us, we would have perished. For Allah taught us, Allah bless them the way they were merciful me when I was a child. And this verse and these injunctions apply whether your parents are alive or not. We still owe our parents who are deceased that respect and that love and we pray for them. If you were completely material and only believed in the material, then for you death would be like, you know, the plug was unplugged, the battery died, it's over. Who cares if your parents died? I don't owe them anything. They're dead. But because our paradigm doesn't teach us that, we know that death is just the transition of one form of life to another. So therefore, those of us whose parents are, are deceased, or our grandparents, we remember. We, may, we recite the Fatiha for our parents and our grandparents and all of those that came before us because we owe them that. Just like those that will come after us will owe us that. And that, therefore, that you know, somebody that's, that's a secular person, they would see that and see that as funny. Why would you do that? We say we do that because my paradigm informs me that this is part of worship. So worship is the first reason why we were created. The second reason Allah says is tazkiyah. Allah says, blessed is the person that rectifies their nafs. Here it's, the hayah is going back to a nafs. And, and cursed is the person that allows their nafs to, uh, to be debased. So improving our nafs is part of our obligation of why we were created, to be the best version of ourselves. Yes, we have demons. Yes, we have deficiencies. Yes, we have problems. But we're not going to stand there and be like, oh, that's just the way I am. Accept me for the way I am. But rather, I'm going to say to myself, I can do better. I can be better than this. I'm going to push myself to be better. 
Inshallah, tomorrow I'll be better than I was today. Ya Allah, help me be better tomorrow than I was today. Personally, personal development. Again, this is why we were, cre we were created for the struggle, which is why we call it Al-Jihad Al-Akbar, the greater struggle, because you're constantly improving yourself. And then the third reason the Qur'an teaches us why we were created is that Allah has created us in this world. Allah has created us from the earth and has asked of us, istamara, he has asked from us that we develop it. The verb istafala in the Arabic language is the person asking is asking of the addressee to do something. If someone says istaftah al-bab, I'm asking that you open the door. Istifta, somebody asked the mufti for a fatwa. For when Allah says, وَاسْتَعْمَرَكُمْ fiha, He has asked of us that we develop this world. Meaning that we're going to live in community. We're going to live in society with those that believe in what we believe and most likely those that don't believe in what we believe. But yet He has asked of us communally as a human race that we have to do something in this world. We have to build institutions, we have to build society, we have to govern society, we have laws and rules and regulations, we have to have education, we have to have services. And all of that is based on our ethical paradigm. So going back to those three big questions, why were we, we were created for those three things? To worship, to improve ourselves, and to build society. So the Muslim's paradigm informs us that we have a purpose in life. That we have to work and, and never give up and keep going and work together and all of these things. It pushes us forward. So we're not thinking of it's just about me. It's just selfish. It doesn't matter what happens to my neighbor. It only happens it, as long as I'm fine, it's okay. Rather the Prophet ﷺ told us, you don't believe if you go to sleep knowing that your neighbor is hungry. And the ulama that explained this verse, they said that the, verse, uh, the hadith rather of neighbors applies to 40 neighbors this way, and 40 neighbors that way, and 40 neighbors this way, coming from some of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. So basically the Prophet ﷺ is saying is that you can't, you're not a true believer if you're not sure that everyone in your neighborhood is okay. He never said the Muslims in your neighborhood. He never said the believers in your neighborhood. He never said the people of faith in your neighborhood. He said your neighborhood, period. And Lord knows the Prophet had for the majority of his life neighbors that didn't like him, neighbors that threw trash on him, neighbors that tried to kill him, neighbors that spit on him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But he is the one that taught us that we have to be good to our neighbors. So you have a purpose in life. And then where are we going? Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. To Allah we belong and to Him we will return. So you know, therefore, with those three questions that begin to sketch our paradigm, sketch our system of thinking, that we believe in reason and science and the observable and the tangible. In addition to, we also believe in revelation. So our paradigm, therefore, is broader and richer and more flexible and more encompassing than a paradigm that is solely built on the material and the rational and the tangible. And that's the key difference, is that we do not negate what we observe. We do not negate one plus one is two. We do not negate that the angles of a triangle are 180 degrees. We do not negate the Pythagorean theorem. We do not negate all of these things. 
We do not negate that we observe the sun rising in the east and the sun setting in the... We don't, we don't deny these things. But we also add on to that, that which the Prophet ﷺ informed us. So when the Prophet ﷺ tells us to do this or to do that or don't do this or don't do that, we equally follow. We equally uh, accept it. And the greatest example, and maybe we can end with this, and like I said, this is the beginning of a longer conversation, is medicine. You have a pain, and I'm not, no offense to, to our physicians. Uh, you have a pain, you go to the doctor, and this is a very simplistic uh, example. The doctor's going to look at that pain, be like, oh, I know that, that person, that person has this type of pain, they need this type of medication. You know, here's a prescription, you know, in and out in three minutes, alhamdulillah, another billing, I can put in another patient. Right? That's a system. And that system is based on a certain paradigm. But if you had a quote-unquote Muslim Islamic paradigm of healing, the person would be like, come in and sit down. You know, tell me, how are you doing? How's your family? You know, how are your children? You know, do you sleep easy? You know, what kind of things do you eat? But you're like, but I have this pain. Like, okay, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. But you know, tell me about yours. Do you pray five times a day? You know, do you have nightmares? They want to have a, a more holistic picture of you. And for those of you who have... Who have Involvement in alternative medicine or homeopathy, for example, you'll know what I'm talking about. When you go to a homeopath, you know, your session with the homeopath, when I sit with my homeopath in Cairo, it's like two hours. She asks me about everything, except the one thing that I'm complaining about. And then she gives you this little pill, and then a week later you're like, hallelujah, everything is better, and I'm happy. The doctor gives you the medicine to uh, cure a certain ailment that you have. You might, that pain might go away, but you still feel crummy. You still feel depressed. You still have problems. Because our paradigm is all-encompassing. It looks at everything. And this is the direction that our society is moving in now. In the West, this very narrow, materialistic, reason-based only paradigm is not solving and fulfilling people's deepest needs. Which is why there's a lot of experimentation in Eastern religions, in meditation, in mindfulness, in yoga, in psychedelics, in cannabis... All of these type of things because people, they want and need something else. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created the human condition such that they need the spiritual. Just like they need the rational. They need the sacred just as like they need the profane. And the reason I'm saying this is for us to remember that these tensions that sometimes we feel, which is normal, we must Return back to what our paradigm is to understand what our religion is telling us. No longer is our daily life the daily life of the Sahaba. And that's fine. That's the sunnah of life. That's what Allah Ta'ala has decreed that our life will change. And that we have technology and all of those things is fine. There's nothing inherently good or evil in these things. But then we are delinked. We are not contiguously speaking the same way that the Sahaba, that the Salaf spoke before us. So, but if we understand this paradigm in its broad sketches, we can then make sense of our religion. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم 
the second khutbah was never meant for announcements, right? So we changed with time, but we have to make the announcements. <clears throat> so tonight's halaqah at 7 is the same. Sunday halaqah at 6 a.m., that's the same. Tomorrow, uh, there's a sister's brunch uh, at 10 a.m., uh, so that's happening in the mosque. Uh, we're asking for dua for Nina uh, Fakhruddin uh, and Sakina Faruqi for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to cure them. I believe that they... Uh, they are in pain, and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for shifat for them and for all of those who are in pain. And we ask Allah's mercy and forgiveness for all of those who have passed in, in the community. Uh, Nadia Batin, who is one of the daughters of a community member, a high school member, she reached out to me to inform me that they're doing a project uh, at their school, raising money for Yemeni, uh, for, for, for those that are suffering in, in Yemen. And uh, they're participating in a local area, a competition called MIST, which is a competition of Muslim groups from high schools around the area. So she shared a link with me. I'd like to share. I'll try to share it with the, uh, make sure that it goes out on the email. But she's asking for support for you know small donations so that they can they can compete inshallah. So that should be forthcoming. Or if you want, you can reach me afterwards. And then lastly, uh, some of the congregants uh, have been abusive to the parking attendants, and. Like I said in the khutbah, you know, being neighborly and being uh, are, are one of the things, we can't be like that. You can't come to Jummah and then, you know, curse out the parking attendant. You know, the Prophet said, when you go to prayer, the way you go to prayer, it's as if you're in prayer. So when you go to prayer, you know, Allah says, Rahman, the, the servants of the merciful one, when they walk on this earth, they walk hawnan. I know it's easy for me to say because they give me parking space, but still... You know, I know what it's like because Anna sometimes takes my parking space. Allah forgive him. Tarif always takes my parking space. Allah forgive him. I know what it's like to park all the way out there. And that's fine. It's okay. You have to remember that there are two now, he said. But there's three of us. Right? I know. So it's okay. Sometimes you have to park far away. That's okay. But you can't abuse these people because they're just, you know, we're doing the best we can. As we know, we have a constant parking problem. Alhamdulillah, we're trying to solve it. So please uh, be mindful and respectful of that. And we, on our side, we will always try to improve uh, our, our service for the community. Uh, I did. Sabran Jamila, the note says. Huh? Beautiful patience. Let's have patience as we come to prayer. And if you can, try to come early. Uh, if you can't, you know, know that you're just going to park far away and walk. And every step that you take, Allah will give you more reward than the people that parked me like lazy, like right out here. So there's always good and always a silver lining. With that, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us for our sins and our shortcomings. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless our families, to bless our children and protect them, to have mercy on our parents and to forgive those who have passed before us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us a better and deeper connection with our faith. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us a deeper and better connection with the Qur'an. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give, her a, give us a, a deeper and better connection with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. فاللهم اهدنا فيمن هديت وعافنا فيمن عافيت اللهم تولنا فيمن توليت وبارك لنا فيما أعطيت اللهم قنا واصرف عنا شر ما قضيت فإنك سبحانك تقضي ولا يقضى عليك ولا يظل من وليت ولا يعز من عاديت تباركت ربنا وتعاليت اللهم ارحم حينا وميتنا وحاضرنا وغائبنا وارفع أيدي الأمم عنا وأقمنا بالحق وأقم الحق بنا اللهم انقلنا من دائرة سخطك إلى دائرة رضاك وافتح علينا فتوح العارفين بك واحشرنا تحت لواء نبيك صلى الله عليه وسلم يوم القيامة 
واسقنا من يده الشريفة شربة ماء لا نظمأ بعدها أبدا ثم أدخلنا الجنة بغير حساب ولا سابقة عقاب ولا عتاب ومتعنا بالنظر إلى وجهك الكريم في جنات الخلد يا رحيم وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين وصل اللهم على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وأقم الصلاة إن الصلاة كانت على المؤمنين كتابا موقوتا